3, 16 and 17 says that all of God's word, all of the scripture is God-breathed or inspired and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Today, I hope to prove to you that that is true even of Daniel 11, meaning that it's actually useful and helpful. May God grant us that. We begin at uh, Daniel chapter 10. I just want to uh, remind you briefly of what Pastor Silvernail said last week. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was received, was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict, or about a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So that, that one verse sort of summarizes all of Daniel 10, 1 through 12, uh, through the first part of chapter 12. Uh, Daniel had a vision. We never see the vision. Uh, he prays for three weeks for understanding. Uh, an angel is sent to him to explain the vision to him. And our passage today, Daniel 11, if you would turn there with me now, is the angel's explanation of this vision that Daniel had. Angels explaining the vision to him. So we begin in Daniel 11, verse 2. I'll read verses 2 and four, through 4 to begin. This is the angel speaking to Daniel. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. If you would please put the first slide up, the Persian map. If you'll recall, the uh, first king of Persia, Cyrus by name, conquered Babylon. Back one, please. Super, thank you. We're great. Thank you very much. The uh, first Persian king, Persia's over here, conquered Babylon in 539. The following year, he allowed the first group of Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem. Our passage picks up after that. In verse 2, it says, Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. So these are the three kings after Cyrus. The first was Cambyses. The second was... Galmata, the third was a guy named Darius I. Not to be confused with the Darius in Daniel chapter 6. Don't you love history? You know, people with the same names over and over again? It just makes it harder, all right? So we got one Darius back in chapter 6, but this is a different Darius. He's the third king mentioned here, king of Persia. He's king from uh, 522 to 486. He invades Greece in 490. That's the first Greco-Persian war. And the Greeks su succeed in defeating Darius' army at the Battle of Marathon. Who runs marathons? Somebody here runs marathons. No? Okay. I stand corrected. But you've heard the word marathon. It's, it's this third king who loses at the Battle of Marathon. Uh, continuing in that verse, a fourth king, a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. That's uh, King Xerxes, who ruled from uh, 485 to 464. He's called Ahasuerus in Esther. So this guy, Xerxes, is Esther's husband. He invades Greece again. He's famous for building a bridge of boats over the Hellespont, invades Greece with one million soldiers. He is defeated in three epic battles, the Battle of Thermopylae, the naval battle of Salamis, and the land battle of Mykonai. Uh, this, uh, of course, results in the Athenian ascendancy in the Peloponnesian Wars, for those of you who are interested in history, okay? But anyhow, that's our uh, fourth Persian king here. He stirs up everyone against Greece, and he loses. Now, we skip ahead in verse 3 
to Alexander the Great. Then a mighty king, that's Alexander, shall arise. And uh, we can go ahead and move to the next slide. Thank you very much. And, and he comes and conquers all of this territory. He uh, overwhelms the Persians and becomes uh, lord of all he can see. However, uh, he dies uh, as a young man in 323, and his kingdom is divided. And I'm just going to ask you to leave this slide up for a while. His kingdom is divided to the four winds of heaven. The key word there is four. Uh, part of his kingdom, the section right here, Macedon and Greece, that goes to one of his generals, Cassander. This section here called Asia Minor goes to some other guy. I can't remember his name. Uh, this part here and this part here are the two important parts. This goes to one of his generals, Ptolemy I. This part here goes to another one of his generals, Seleucid I. And who's stuck right between those two kingdoms? Yeah, the Israelites right there. So for hundreds of years, these two kingdoms are going to duke it out uh, because, you know, everyone wants to be the next Alexander, unite Alexander's empire. You know, by the way, people back then didn't need an excuse to go to war, you know? I mean, everyone just understood that you're the king, you're going to try to conquer the world. It was just sort of a given, you know? So it's not like, it's not like when this guy decided to invade here, everyone's like, wow, why are we doing that? You know, it's just, that's just the way it is, okay? Everyone's always trying to conquer everyone. So uh, constantly as these armies are going back and forth, there's only one road between the two, and it goes right through uh, Judea or Palestine. And uh, they're caught up in all of these conflicts. Uh, I'd have you note just a couple things from earlier in Daniel. First of all, this transfer of power from the Persians to the Greeks has been mentioned three times previously in Daniel. This is actually our fourth time we've done this. So let's just look at those real quick to remind ourselves of what we've seen. Look back at Daniel 2, please, real quick. Daniel chapter 2. Same book just earlier. Just want to remind you that we're actually getting uh, stuff repeated here from earlier in Daniel. Daniel 2, the very end of 38, Daniel explaining Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He says at the end of 38, you are the head of gold. You recall that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a statue made of four kinds of metal. The Babylonians were the head of gold. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. That's the chest of silver. Those are the Persians. And then a third kingdom of bronze. Those are the Greeks and, of course, the Iron Romans after that. If you skip over to chapter 7. Same basic summary of the history after Daniel is given through a symbol of four beasts. If you look at verse 5 in chapter 7, behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. These are the Persians. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird. Again, the four symbolizes the uh, four kingdoms that... Uh, Alexander's conquests are divided into, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Uh, so again, two uh, visions that talk about this history stuff, okay, Persians to Greeks, and one more in chapter 8, please. One more in chapter 8, verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Those are the Persians, the medio persian Empire. And skip down to verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, that's the, uh, those are the Greeks, Alexander, and he conquers the Persians. So, listen, I, I know you know this stuff, and that's great, but it's helpful just to remember that Daniel is repeating himself. The prophets like doing this. This is the fourth time we're getting the same stuff here in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. I'm not an idiot. I know that many of you don't really care about this stuff. 
Okay, I, I know some of you like it, you're really into history. Some of you aren't so into history. Okay, I realize that. But let me challenge you with something. The Holy Spirit is also not an idiot. Okay, he knows you're not interested, and he doesn't care. Okay, <laughs> he loves us anyway, all right? Okay, <laughs> thank you. No, we're Irish, thank you. <laughs> I love you, Iris. The Holy Spirit has put this historical information in the Bible for a reason. Uh, he knows that this chapter is somewhat dull. You know, I, I have a degree in history. I actually like history. Uh, I'm especially interested in the Old Testament. And of, of all history, I'm most interested personally in exilic and post-exilic history. So if there's any person on the planet who should find this passage interesting, it's me. And I have to confess, I find it boring. All right? Uh, I, I get through... In the last month and a half as I've read through this, I've, I've timed myself how many verses I get through before my brain just, poof, just gone, all right, just drifts off. I average about 10 verses. Right? Sometimes I only get two or three, and boom, I'm gone. Sometimes I get oh, 15, wow, that was great, poof, just, just gone, all right? So uh, I realize that, and of course, that's the challenge this morning. Can, can we see that this is still useful, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, useful uh, for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. May God grant us that. I'm going to ask uh, Alex Beaton to come up and read verses 5 through 10. And as he's reading, we're going to keep this map up here, and you're going to keep hearing about the king of the north, the king of the south. This is the king of the north, the Seleucids, the king of the south, the Ptolemies. And just have to imagine the empires going at it with the Jews stuck in the middle. Hello. Okay. Uh, Daniel 11, verses 5 through 20. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger. Then he shall rule, and his authority shall be great, a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. (coughs) But she shall be... (coughs) Sorry. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them, and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods, with their metal images, and their precious vessels of silver and gold. For some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow the pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with a rage, shall come out and fight with the king of the north, And he shall raise a great multitude, but shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. 
but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of agreement and perform them. He shall give them the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands, and he shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put up to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in the place of one who shall send an exactor of tribute for glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Thank you, Alex, very much. If you would turn briefly with me to the, you can keep a bulletin or whatever in Daniel 11, but turn to the very end of the Old Testament place. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Turn to the very end of Malachi, chapter 4. Malachi was a prophet about 430 B.C., the last prophet in the Old Testament. What's the next book of the Bible? Matthew, about Jesus' birth. About what year was Jesus born? About 4 B.C. Remember, the guy who designed the calendar was off by four years. So we've got, we have a gap between the Old and the New Testament. It's over 400 years. That gap in history is called the intertestamental period. So I'm going to require you to learn that phrase today. The intertestamental period, which simply means that it's the period between the testaments. Okay, we can do that, right? So let's try it together. Come on. Intertestamental period. Okay, great. Very good. Uh, go ahead. Turn back to Daniel now. The, the main purpose of the book of Daniel is to encourage the Jews during the intertestamental period. Because during those 400 years, what didn't they have any of? They had no prophets. That's why we've got no Bible books written in that time. The prophets were the ones who wrote the books of the Bible. So to make up for the lack of a prophet, God gave them the book of Daniel. And they were supposed to use Daniel especially, I mean, obviously all the rest of the Old Testament, but Daniel especially to uh, be encouraged uh, as these two kingdoms uh, did battle uh, with themselves sort of stuck right in the middle. So you have to kind of imagine, uh, here are the Jews in Palestine, and here comes another army through, all right? And they're supposed to look at Daniel 11 and find the verse that's actually being fulfilled right then and be encouraged by that. But God is sovereign. God is in charge. He, he planned this stuff. He predicted it ahead of time. And, and that is our encouragement right now. I mean, there's no, there's no glory. There's no, no uh, outward happiness here. You know, we're just getting stomped on constantly and, and used and abused. But God is in control. God is sovereign. And uh, Lord willing, uh, God's people use the book of Daniel throughout that whole period and, and we're encouraged by it as they saw prophecy after prophecy fulfilled generation after generation. 
Praise be to God, we worship a sovereign God. That is the main purpose of the book of Daniel. Now, the section that uh, was just read out loud uh, covers a period of history of about 75 years with all, all sorts of wars between these two kingdoms. Now, if we went verse by verse through this and I explained it all, we'd be here till dinner, all right? So we are not going to go verse by verse through this, all right? Uh, if, if you are really interested in which, in which historical personages are referred to in each verse, I encourage you to get a study Bible or go online, type in Daniel 11. You'll, boy, you'll get all the history you want, okay? It's all there. Uh, but for, for time's sake and staying awake's sake, we're uh, not going to uh, do that, all right? But just let me make a few comments on what was just read. First of all, uh, chapter 15, I'm sorry, verse 15. Then the king of the north, it's actually the Seleucid king Antiochus III, shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. The forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops. Verse 16, he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. This took place in 198. And what's so important about this is that at first, Palestine or Judea, where the Jews were living, was under the control of the Ptolemies. And the Ptolemies didn't care what your religion was. Okay? So that they let the Jews worship their God, and it just didn't really bother them. However, the Seleucids had a very different policy. Uh, the people here speak one language and have one culture. People here are different. People here are different. It was a very disparate empire. And so the uh, leaders of the Seleucid Empire, who were Greek, their people weren't Greek, but the ruling class was Greek, they wanted to unite their empire under a common religion, and they uh, decided uh, in, later in the century to require all the Jews to uh, worship the Greek gods. And that's what we're going to get to in the next section here. But right now is where we've got the sort of transfer of Judea to the uh, Seleucid Empire. If you look at verse 17, it says, Afterward, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 17, He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. The uh, Seleucid king gave his daughter Cleopatra I, to the ruler of the Ptolemies, and he hoped that uh, she would be loyal to her father and raise her child to, to uh, be loyal to her old kingdom, and that this way he would sort of conquer the Ptolemies through marriage. Uh, it didn't work. Cleopatra turned traitor on her dad, was very loyal, faithful to her husband, and uh, she became a, a hero in Egypt, and her daughters after her, of course, named Cleopatra. Cleopatra VII is the famous one who was with Mark Antony and committed suicide with the Aspen in, in AD 30. But uh, that's Cleopatra I in uh, 17. And in verse 18, it says, A commander shall put an end to his insolence. This is our first reference to the Romans. The uh, Romans didn't like it that the Seleucids were getting so uppity. So they, uh, the Roman general Scipio led an army into Asia Minor. He defeated the Seleucids in a series of battles. And that is what secured this area for the Roman Empire uh, in, uh, I believe, the 160s B.C. Now I would like uh, Dan please, to come up and read verses 21 through 35. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. 
Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and and many shall fall down slain. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be with the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come, back, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall be turned back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the, t- until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. The section he just read uh, entirely concerns just one Seleucid king, uh, Antiochus IV, uh, more commonly known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the one who uh, systematically tries to destroy the Jewish religion in the 160s B.C., uh, and that is what uh, verse 31 is talking about. Uh, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple. So I believe in 168, he he went into the temple. He he stopped the uh, sacrifices in the temple. He set up an altar to Zeus, uh, again, a Greek god. They're insisting that all the Jews uh, worship the Greek gods and goddesses and uh, require people to offer pigs in the temple uh, in sacrifice to uh, Zeus. The uh, Jews had three choices. They could offer the pigs, they could be executed, or they could flee into the hills. And uh, some people did all three. I, I believe over 100,000 people were executed for not offering uh, pigs to Zeus. Uh, many Jews did, cave into the pressure and uh, worship the Greek gods. But the ones who uh, ran off into the hills were eventually organized by a priest named Mattathias and his uh, sons, the Maccabees, as they're known, who led a revolt. That's what uh, verse uh, 34 is referring to. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. The uh, Maccabees lead a small sort of ragtag army in a series of epic one-sided battles. I mean, they're outnumbered five to one, ten to one, and yet they beat the, the uh, armies of the uh, Seleucid Empire in battle after battle. Uh, probably, well, I don't know, it could be miraculous. The Bible doesn't explain how it happened. Maybe they were all miraculous victories. Maybe it's just the Jews had nothing to lose. I mean, they were all going to be executed anyway, so that, that tends to, you know, you, you can't kill a dead man, you know? So uh, the, their army was very very motivated, certainly. Uh, They do succeed in driving the Seleucids out of Judah and for uh, establish a tiny separate uh, Jewish country. They rededicate the temple in December of 164 BC, and a new feast is established, the Feast of Dedication, which is commonly called Hanukkah. Hanukkah uh, celebrates the victory over the Seleucids led by Judas Maccabeus and the rededication of the temple, the restoration of the right sacrifices to the true God. One thing that I, I think makes uh, this chapter of Daniel so hard is that it reads like a history book, but it's not a history book. It's a prophecy. 
Daniel is, is writing about stuff that hasn't happened yet, but all you have to do is change the verb tenses and put the proper nouns in, and it actually reads like, well, one of those boring books at school, the infamous history textbook. All right, so let's just pick verse 31, for example. I mean, we can, we can change the verbs into simple past and put the proper nouns in, okay? The forces of Antiochus Epiphanes appeared and profaned the temple in 168. They took away the regular burnt offerings. They set up an idol of Zeus in the temple that desecrated it, and for three or three and a half years, there were no sacrifices offered to the true God in the temple in Jerusalem. I believe this chapter reads like a history book because God is very much trying to give us an inspired record of intertestamental history. And let me say that again. I believe this chapter reads like a history book because that's exactly what God is trying to do. He is trying to give us an inspired history of the intertestamental period. God wants us to know everything that happens from creation to Christ. For those 4,000 years, we've got all the rest of the Old Testament covering up till after the exile. But then we've got this 400-year gap of intertestamental history. God wants us to know what happened in those 400 years. He wants us to have it all, creation to Christ, in our minds. And to do that, he gives us the prophet Daniel. Now, uh, someone could say, well, if God wants us to know the history, why doesn't he just raise up other prophets in that time? I mean, who wrote the Bible? The Old Testament, the the prophets. That's right. And the Bible is first and foremost a history book. I mean, the prophets do, do more recording of history than predicting of the future. I mean, all the history books are written by the prophets. So why not just raise up another prophet? God doesn't do that. 400 years, no prophets. I, I believe the reason why God has no prophets in that 400 years is because he's getting us ready, us, the people of God, ready for the life we live now. Do we have any prophets now? No, we don't. Uh, we live our lives based upon what? Yeah, the Bible, what the prophets have already written. And during those 400 years, what did the people of God do? They learned to build their lives not upon what the current prophet was teaching, because there was no prophet. They learned to build their lives on the, on the Bible, on the Old Testament. It's, a, it's just a very different kind of life. It's the life we live. And, and the there's a, I mean, a transition between Old and New Testament from the kind of life they lived, the life of children, to the life we live now, the life of adults. We were children. We, the people of God, were children in the Old Testament. Okay, we're adults now. Children get predictions about the future. Predictions about the future help you make decisions. Adults don't get predictions about the future. Okay, we have to make our decisions based upon old, fulfilled prophecies, and our knowledge of God, our knowledge of his ways and his will, and what pleases him. God was getting us ready for this life, the life where we don't have prophets anymore. And yet, and yet God wants us to know what happened during that time. So I believe the book of Daniel is God's way of having his cake and eating it too. Because he has, he has two different goals in mind. I want to prepare people for a life when there are no more prophets, when they're, when they're building their life upon the word of God as recorded. And yet I also want them to know what happened. Well, I'll just have Daniel record it ahead of time. Kill two birds with one Stone. Now, it could be objected that we have secular history books that cover the period between the Testaments. That's certainly true. But history books written by men are not infallible. Okay, they contain mistakes. Uh, for example, uh, I can pick up a history book that says that the Great Depression was caused by a lack of government involvement in the economy. 
And that's what most people believe. You understand that? Most of the economists believe that. All right? And that the solution to the Depression was more government involvement in the economy. FDR was the greatest person who ever lived. I can pick up another history book that says the Great Depression was caused by government involvement in the economy. And the worst thing that the government did was actually try to fix the problem because it made it worse and last 10 times as long. Those books can't both be right. Now, they might both be wrong, but they can't both be right. And that's the point. They're not inspired. Human history is not inspired. God doesn't just want us to have human history about this period. He wants us to have an inspired record, to know for certain what happened in those 4,000 years. You ask why? Well, that's a good question. Maybe we'll get there. I have to say this. You know, I have a love-hate relationship with the Apostles' Creed. I love that it's Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because there's no Muslim, Jew, Unitarian, Buddhist who can get up and say, I believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So right away, we just chuck the whole, all religions are the same thing. That's great. I can't stand it that the Apostles' Creed doesn't contain the gospel. Where in the Apostles' Creed does it explain why Jesus died on the cross? It doesn't. Where does it explain how we receive the benefits of his death on the cross? It doesn't. I just want to scream every time I read the Apostles' Creed. So much pain and agony through so many centuries could have been avoided. If you just add a couple sentences in there. That Jesus died as a substitute for sinners, the just or the unjust to reconcile us to God, that you can't earn your salvation. You, you can't do anything to earn the favor of God, that Christ has earned it for you. And that if you, if you believe in him, if you trust in what he did instead of what you do, God will forgive you. Ah! Hmm. But I love the Apostles' Creed because it, it's a history lesson. It's a history lesson. That's what the Apostles' Creed is. It summarizes biblical history. Where does biblical history begin? At creation. Where's the climax of history? The ministry, the person of Christ. Where does history end? With the final judgment. It, it gives us a sweeping view of history. Christian theology is first and foremost history. It's first and foremost history. We believe that these events happened. We believe that these other events are going to happen. So I love the Apostles' Creed even as I hate it. <laughs> Sam Silvernail is going to come read Daniel 11, 36 through 45. And I would have you know, uh, as he's reading this, that the majority of modern uh, believers think that this passage is about the Antichrist, that uh, there's a radical shift here from talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, I disagree with that. But again, if you think that, I love you just as much. Please, go ahead, Dan. <laughs> This is Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt uh, himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the god of his fathers or the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god. For he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of the fortresses instead of these. A God whom his father did not know, he shall honor with gold, silver, with precious stones, and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him shall load with honor. Um, he shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the, end of the, at the end of the time, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. 
He shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy the devote many to destruction. And, shall he, and he shall pitch his patial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Thank you, Sam. I have 15 minutes worth of stuff to convince you that this isn't about the Antichrist, and I'm not going to share any of it. Another time. Why does God want you to know so much history? Let me ask you this. Why does Satan not want you to know history? Why do totalitarian countries teach their people revisionist history? Actually, you can go ahead and turn that off now. Thank you. Revisionist history, meaning uh, they actually make up history. They, they change it and they teach it to their people. Why are there countries on this earth where if you learn what really happened, they will execute you for that knowledge? Just learning history. It will kill you for that. Why? What is it about history? Governments have learned that the easiest way to control how people think is to restrict their knowledge of history. Let me say that again. Governments have learned that the easiest way to control how people think is to restrict their knowledge of history. They teach false history, yes, but more importantly, they keep what really happened a secret. What you know about the past determines how you think in the present. Let me say that again as well, please. What you know about the past determines how you think in the present. An accurate knowledge of biblical history, creation to Christ, is essential if you are going to have a biblical worldview. And indeed, that, that is actually one thing God uses to, to give you a biblical worldview, this, this knowledge of biblical history. What does biblical history teach? It teaches, first of all, that all other possible solutions for sin have been tried by God, and they all failed. There is only one answer for sin, and that is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Second, biblical history teaches that history is all about God, not about man. We study history for the same reason we study math, to learn about the God who, through his providence, is in charge of it all. History... We learn from biblical history that history is a battle between two kingdoms, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, between the city of man and the city of God, between the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. If, if you go to uh, a higher level history class, what your teacher is most interested in is not teaching you history. What they want is to give you a paradigm for interpreting history. So you'll go to one history teacher and they tell you that history is all about homosexuality. That's what it's all about. It's all about the battle between heterosexuals and homosexuals and them trying to keep us down and us, us trying to rise up to the top. You go to the next history class and they say, history is all about feminism. It's all about men trying to keep women down and women trying to rise up and revolt against them. 
That's what, that's what everything is really about. So everything you read, you have to understand. And those like, you go to another history teacher and they say, ah, history is all about the, the battle between the rich and the poor, about the, the inevitable conquest and victory of communism over the whole earth, and so on. It goes on and on and on. Every teacher has an agenda. They want you to see history and see the world through, through those glasses. And guess what? Who else has an agenda? God. He has an agenda. And, th- and that is why all this history stuff is here in the Bible, because he wants you to interpret history with this paradigm, that all of history is about a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's not about the United States. It's not about terrorism. It's about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And everything needs to be interpreted and seen in that way. Fourth, biblical history teaches us that history is linear. It is linear. The Eastern religions are wrong. They say that history is cyclical. It just goes around and around. Nonsense. There's a definite beginning. There's a clear climax with Christ. There's a clear end with the return of Christ. And thinking that way is revolutionary. Changes your life. Fifth, we learn from biblical history that because we Christians are the body of Christ, history is all about us. Unbelievers are on the margins. They are peripheral. In the grand scheme of things, they just don't matter as much. It's the people of God and what God is doing with his people that actually matters most in history and what matters most right now on earth. Six, biblical history teaches that we Christians are on the winning side. We are on the winning side. All the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Do you walk out of history class, students? Do you walk out singing? (laughs) Rejoicing in the sovereignty of God. I've learned more today about how God rules. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Praise be to God. I'm singing. Why are you singing? Because I was just in history class. (laughs) Do you walk out of history class happy? That your teacher has connected the events of history with the didactic portions of the Bible. Deuteronomy, Proverbs, Matthew, Romans. And you say, yes, I see how it all fits together. All, this, all the teaching passages of the Bible, they all connect with the stuff that's actually happened. And I get it. Do you walk out of history class encouraged to keep following Christ? Do you walk out of history class renewed in your sense of purpose, knowing why you're here and how you fit into God's plan? That is why the Bible teaches history. If this is not your attitude when you walk out of history class, then you are not learning real history. You are learning a revised humanistic version of events intended to crush your spirit and render you unfruitful in kingdom service. The battle is for your mind. And if our enemy can simply keep the biblical history out of your mind, he has already won much of the battle over how you think. Don't let the devil have your brain. Learn and imply the inspired history that God has recorded for you in his word. Let's pray.